Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. A week and a half ago, two weeks tomorrow, we were in North Carolina, a whole bunch of us, for the Vineyard National Conference. And uh, it was an exciting time. Uh, I actually happened to mention to my wife right in the middle of it with all these thousands of people surrounding me. I said, is COVID even a thing anymore? I guess uh, that, <laughs> it got me. Uh, it didn't get me. It got her. It got her. Um, but we were at this national conference and it, it, something happened on the, the last day of the conference. On the last day of the conference, uh, they, the topic was global missions. And, and so they had worship, and then uh, they had some people share some things, and then Bubba Justice, that is his real name, uh, came up. He's in charge of the vineyard missions uh, all around the world. And what he said was, you know, we're going to share a, a story about what God is doing in Ukraine. If you watched the live stream, it cut to a video of what God was doing in Ukraine, And he stood there awkwardly in the middle of the stage like this for like 10 seconds. And I was like, ah, the video's not coming up. What's happening? And what he said is, everybody who's watching online is watching a video now. I want you to promise me that you're not going to take pictures of what's about to happen. Because if you take pictures and share these pictures, it may cost people their lives. It was impactful to me. He brought two missionaries from the Middle East up on stage. People who have lived their lives for the sake of people coming to know Jesus in some of the most dangerous places in the world. It was a very unassuming couple. Um, They weren't hyped up or charismatic. As far as preachers go, you would be like, "Ah, maybe this is not your gift. But they walked up on stage and began to share what was happening in their mission, how they felt called, how it was that they knew God had called them to missions. And everyone in the room was captivated by these people who were not the least bit, like, exciting because of their story. And what they said as they were talking about what had happened is they had two kids, and, and they said at one, they knew at some point they might be arrested for sharing Jesus with people. And it was a thing that they sort of were like, yeah, this could happen. Well, the day came, and they were arrested, put in prison separately. Their two kids were left, and they had to wonder for weeks what was happening with their kids, what was happening with their spouse. And they lived in this cell, and, and they described it wasn't the absence of fear. So they were terrified. They thought, he, the, the husband said, you know, I thought when you're a missionary and you get imprisoned for sharing Jesus, you're like, yes, I've done it. He said, that's not how I felt. He was terrified. His wife was terrified. They were playing mind games on him. At one point, they intentionally said in front of his cell, she's dead. What are we going to do with this one? So as to make him think his wife was dead. And for a week, he thought his wife had been killed for her faith. Nevertheless, they chose 
to persist in sharing Jesus. In the, in the face of great fear, they shared Jesus boldly. And as they got to the end of their talk, the wife said something that I thought was ridiculous. And you'll understand why here in a minute. Here's a woman who's been imprisoned for her faith, something that most of us will never experience. And she said, you know, when we surrendered our lives to Jesus, we all signed up to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We all signed up to suffer, and so we went to prison because we had signed up to suffer for sharing Jesus with people. And here's what she said that I thought was ridiculous. She said, so whether it's going to prison or missing a nap for the sake of sharing the gospel, we've signed up to suffer. And I think we all sat there like this missionary who's had her life on the line just said, hey, missing a nap for the sake of the gospel is the same as going to prison. And I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> and when she walked off the stage, everybody stood and applauded. Now, this is a little bit like the State of the Union address, like everybody that goes up and, you know, everybody stands and applauds for all the leaders and whatever, right? But people in the audience applauded for minutes. Evan leaned over to me. He goes, I don't think we applauded long enough. What causes someone to engage at this kind of a level? What causes people to be so excited that they would surrender their lives willingly? for the sake of the gospel. You know, we all applauded because we live in a very comfortable place. It's very comfortable to be a Christian in America. We all applauded because we watched a credible witness who was willing to surrender their life for Jesus, not because they were fearless, but because they were called. And we all applauded because somehow we felt like there's a model for what this looks like. We've been in this series through 1 Peter all summer, and I'm going to finish it today. And, and all through this summer, what I've told you is that the Apostle Peter is writing to these Christians who have been exiled to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire for their faith. And he's writing to encourage these Christians. And he writes, and what he says is, suffer well for the sake of the spread of the gospel. That's the essence of the message of this letter. Suffer well for the message of the gospel, that the gospel would spread. But what would cause these Christians that Peter's writing to to actually do it? What would cause them to do it? What I want you to see today is that we're all called to be credible witnesses. And that it's credible witness that causes people to persist in faith. I'm calling today's message, being a model worth following. Would you pray with me? And then we'll open the Bible. Lord Jesus, I'm struck by the fact that you have called men and women for generations to follow you. And in every generation, Lord, you have put credible witnesses that have pointed the way for us. 
And so, Lord, I ask today that you would give us grace to become credible witnesses for generations to come. God, would you use me to speak your words faithfully? And Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts to you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Whew, it's going to be hard for me, y'all. I'm, some of you are like, why is he crying about this? It doesn't make any sense. As I prepared for this message, and you'll see why here in a minute, there's something powerful when you read through this book and you track the lives of the first Christians and how it is that they went about spreading the gospel and the cost that they paid. I spent so much time walking through names and walking through places where these people went, and it's just been, it's just wrecked me all week. So I want you to imagine for a minute, okay? Put your, what do they call it, your imagination cap? I don't know, you teachers, it's thinking caps, right? Put your imagination on for a minute, okay? I want you to imagine you're these Christians receiving this letter, okay? Here you are, you've lived your entire lives in, in the city of Rome, and you've conducted yourself however you wanted. You sort of just went with the flow. You did your job. You hung out with friends. You went to parties. You did all the things that everyone else in culture was doing. And after a while, somebody comes along and shows up in Rome and says, Hey, I know that we all follow this Caesar. But here's what I want you to know. There's another king in town. There's another king who is Lord over all. His name is Jesus. That he came to set all things right, to make all things new again. And that he calls for your allegiance. And the basis for that allegiance is that he laid his life down and died on your behalf. But it didn't stop there. That he was raised to new life. And that he's alive now. And he calls people to follow him. And suppose for a minute you, you said, wow, that sounds amazing. All right, I will follow this Jesus. And so they led you through this prayer of surrender. And they said, now the next step is to, in front of everyone, declare your faith and be baptized. And so you did that and you began to live among these Christian brothers and sisters in a community that was unlike any other community. People willingly laid down their stuff for you. And you willingly laid down your stuff for them. You had friends who cared for you in a way that nobody ever has. You felt this inexpressible love that you've never really experienced before. You felt forgiveness that you never experienced before. Perhaps these people, when they showed up, they performed some miracle, somebody got healed, or they had a prophetic word for you. You were like, how did you know that? And so you were marked by this like power of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what that's like? And it's amazing to be in this community. Now imagine that this government snatched you out of that community and sent you to the furthest reaches of the empire. 
among people who were not supportive of your faith. They ripped you from your community. And what you were surrounded by was people who lived the same way that you used to live. How would you respond in that situation? What would it be like for you to live there in that place? Certainly there would be a number of things that would be possible, right? We would, we would begin to wonder, like, is God mad at us? Did we upset God? We might begin to wonder, is God even real? You know, we never did actually see Jesus. It was just Peter told us about Jesus. Is it worth continuing? Or should we just give up and, and surrender and just say, you know what? I'm going to go back to the ways that I used to live because it was comfortable. And then this letter comes from Peter. And in the letter, Peter says, you guys are God's chosen people. And I'm calling you now to live as missionaries in the places that you exist. To live there and to suffer well such that the gospel would spread. What would you do? Would you do it? Would you just decide, yeah, okay, well, this letter's good enough. I'm going to persist. I'm going to press on. Or would you, you know, sort of question it like, I don't know if this is worth it. I may never see this guy Peter again. What would you do? How would you live your life? At some point, all of us are going to think the same question, aren't we? And the question is, how trustworthy is Peter? He told us about Jesus. He's the one telling us to suffer. Can we trust him? That's the question that would come at some point. And here's what, what we read in 1 Peter 5 at the end. Some of you thought we were just going to read a closing. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter says, this is the true grace of God. What's the true grace of God? The true grace of God is that you would suffer for the spread of the gospel. And we're asking again, how trustworthy is Peter? Because a lot of times, especially in an American context, this isn't what we signed up for, right? We signed up to be prosperous. We signed up for, for everything to go well. People told me my life was a mess and now it's going to be amazing. And Peter says, this is the true grace of God that you would suffer for the sake of the spread of the gospel. How trustworthy is Peter? Faced with what could be a lifetime of suffering, how much do we believe what Peter says? How much do we start to question the healing that, that, that the, the apostles did on, on my brother who I, who I watched? And that was the testimony of the fact that Jesus had been raised. Maybe it was just all a mind trick. How trustworthy is Peter? 
And what this points to is the need for a credible witness. The need of a credible witness. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, somewhere in your life, you had a credible witness, right? You had somebody who demonstrated to you that this life of following Jesus was possible and was worth it. Maybe it was an aunt or an uncle, it was a parent, it was a teacher, it was a Sunday school teacher, it was a friend, it was a coworker. Somebody demonstrated to you that it was possible to follow Jesus and that there was life in it, that there could be something for you here. That's how we find our way into life with Jesus is that we've observed a credible witness. And if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus... Odds are good that the only reason you're here is because you are near to a credible witness. There's a real need in all of our lives for a credible witness. We all need credible witnesses to invite us into life with Jesus. And that's before we find our way to life with Jesus and then all along, is it not? Those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, doesn't it help when a credible witness comes along and says, keep going, there's more? Doesn't it help? We were surrounded in that room in North Carolina with thousands of experienced leaders in the church. And there wasn't one of us who didn't go away blessed by a credible witness who says there's more. Don't we need a credible witness? Doesn't matter where you are, how long you've been following Jesus, we all need a credible witness. And the fact of the matter is, here we stand 2,000 years after Jesus... And the reason we're here 2,000 years is because for generations, there have been credible witnesses. And my question to you is, will there be a credible witness for the next generation? Will we be the credible witness that says, yes, following Jesus is possible and there's life in it? We all need credible witnesses Because this is how we decide what we do with our lives, right? Every choice we make in our lives forms us. Do you know that? Every choice you make forms you, especially the ones that nobody knows about, right? Those of you who are in good shape, nobody knows that you get up at 5 o'clock and go to the gym and work out, right? They just see the effect of that choice over and over and over. The choices you make form you. Right, And so every choice you make either forms you more into being a credible witness or it forms you more into being a hypocrite, somebody who says something that they don't actually practice. When I was far from Jesus 20 plus years ago, I was chasing a girl into a campus ministry and I didn't care about the campus ministry. I didn't really believe that God existed. But I was chasing her, and she told me I had to go to a campus ministry. And these people, in case you're wondering, it's not Jerry. I just ruined that for some of you. It's like this storybook ending that was coming that I just dashed the hopes for. Um, But I went to this campus ministry, and these people were so nice. They were so kind. They were so welcoming. And it made me so mad. Because I knew they were all phonies. 
I knew they were just putting it on. And so I set it out to be my goal to prove that these Christians were all fake. You can, I mean, anything you can imagine I said. I mean, I was crass. I was rude. I was disrespectful. Because all I was trying to do is prove that these people were just putting it on, right? Like, this is a show. In your real life, you're not this nice. You're not this kind. You don't actually want me around, and I'm going to prove it. <laughs> and in, my res- in, in their response to me, it was consistently welcome, kindness, generosity, welcome, kindness, generosity. They started inviting me places, and I'm like, I wouldn't invite me places. Did you hear what I called you? But they welcomed me. And here's the beautiful thing. Because of this culture of welcome and hospitality and of generosity, it created this environment of credible witness wherein I met Jesus. And 20 years later, there are people in this city who know Jesus because of credible witness. 20 plus years ago. Credible witness is something we all need. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to be that credible witness. Some of you think you've chosen the job that you've chosen on purpose. And maybe to the best of your ability, you have. But as a follower of Jesus, the job you have is God's deliberate placement of you in a place that needs a credible witness. Wherever it is that you go to school, God has placed you there to be a credible witness to the people around you. In your workplace, God has placed you. In your neighborhood, God has placed you. In your family, some of you are surrounded by people in your family who don't follow Jesus. And some of you right now find that to be an irritation, right? You show up to family gatherings and you're like, they just won't quit messing with me about this thing that I follow Jesus. They poke fun at me all the time. But do you know you're there to be a credible witness to the gospel? Our mission statement, I say every single week, is to transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel. If you begin to think about your life this way, that you are one who has been the recipient of the gospel and that you are placed as a credible witness in every place that you find yourself, it changes how you do things. Have you tried that? Do you recognize that? Every place you go, the mission changes when you understand that you're, you're there as a credible witness. Years ago, I was a flight instructor. Some of you didn't know that. Years ago, I used to fly airplanes. Last year, in fact, and, and before. <laughs> the most convenient way to say that. I used to fly airplanes. Um, anyway, once upon a time, I was a flight instructor. Now, flying airplanes is like any other skill. You can get really good at it, right? Like you, any job that you have, any skill that you have, you can get good. And you start to know that if I, if I, I it's not that I'm cutting corners. I've just learned to be efficient, Right? to do a great job in a short period of time. And that's what people pay you for, right? Experience creates this person who can fly airplanes and do a great job in a short amount of time, okay? But here's what I realized as a flight instructor. The people who were learning to fly were watching me. They didn't know what it was like to fly an airplane, and so they just paid attention to what I was doing. And what I learned is that my, what might feel like shortcuts, my efficiencies, They would copy, but they didn't know why. And what I realized is I'm supposed to be a model to these guys 
So I started thinking differently about how it was I was teaching. So I would show up to the airport, and there were things I wouldn't say anymore. Not because they were bad, but because these students needed to hear me say the right steps. These students needed to hear me model the right behavior so that they could become good pilots, right? So in the airplanes, I began to think intentionally about how do I do all the steps, even though I'm like, oh, you can combine the steps here and it's an efficiency, right? How do I do all the steps? Why? Because I was trying to create an atmosphere where I look like a credible witness so that these people could learn something. The same is true of you as a follower of Jesus. It begins to shape how you think about your life when you know that you're going to show up to school and the students are going to look at you and what they expect, whether you know it or not, is that you are a follower of Jesus and if I follow you, I can get close. Do you know that? Every place you're in, that's true. If you're a follower of Jesus and people know about it, by the way, people should know about that. If they, some of you don't really. You should know, people should know around you that you're a follower of Jesus. That shouldn't be like a secret, like to be discovered later. It's something that you should actually do. You should live your life as a follower of Jesus. And people look at you and they go, if I follow that person, I can get close. Or they say, let's see if this is worth doing. You can be a credible witness. People are watching you. You're a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus in every space. If you have kids, you know this, right? You have kids, you want your kids to follow Jesus, right? Have you become aware that your kids do what you do? Those of you who have been parents for more than like five minutes recognize this, right? Your kids do what you do. I have heard things that I have said out of my kids' mouths, and I am look at Jerry, and she's like, that's your fault. <laughs> right? My son acts just like I do, and sometimes it's annoying. But the kids watch us, don't they? And if you want your kids to grow up following Jesus, you have to be the credible model, which means something. We've been trying to be very deliberate about this. We believe that praying matters. We want our kids to know that praying matters. Do you know what happens when they come to us with a problem? We say, can we pray about that? We do that on purpose because what we want them to equate is, when I have a problem, I ask God to fix it. We try to be a credible witness. If you're married, your spouse needs to see from you a credible witness of how to follow Jesus as a married person. You know you can't put that marriage relationship on autopilot. You actually have to intentionally invest that way. Those of you who want to be married, don't get married just to fix yourself or to fix someone else. Marriage is a, is a partnership of two complete people. You bring all of you as a follower of Jesus, and they bring all of them as a follower of Jesus. Your spouse needs to see what it looks like as a credible witness to follow Jesus. Everybody around you needs to see this. And some of you are like, yeah, but that's all well and good, Derek. That's, that's for people who have it together. Right? Isn't that what you, some of you are thinking? You're like, yeah, okay, you know, you're... You, you professional ministry, you get paid to do this thing, you're, you're, the, you're the one, you have it more together. First of all, let me just tell you, we don't have it more together. If you know me well, you know we don't have it more together. But secondly, 
It's actually in those spaces where you don't have it together that you become the most credible witness. Do you know that? Like some of you are afraid to share the weaknesses that you have because you're afraid that the people around you will go, oh, this is what a Christian life is. It's a mess. No, everybody, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not, is going to go through a mess. Do you know that? Whether you follow Jesus or not, you're going to find yourself in hard times. You're going to find yourself in struggle. You're going to go through a mess. There's going to be the financial thing and the relational thing, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. So when you, as a follower of Jesus, say, I'm struggling in this place, that makes you the most authentic witness. Because now people watch and they go, you don't have anything to lose if you give up on this Jesus stuff. And when you choose to persist, it changes things. It changes things. Check this out. I want you to see something real quick. Look at, we're going to read the verses again, 12, beginning verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, I don't know if you counted the people that get referred to here, but it's not just Peter writing the letter. Did you catch that? It's not just Peter writing the letter. There appear to be f- at least four people involved in this letter, right? There's f- at least four people. There's Peter, there's Silas, there's Mark, and then there's some unnamed woman in Babylon. He says, she who is in Babylon, who was chosen with you, sends you her greetings, right? There's at least four people. So I want you to see what we know about these people. The first person is Peter. Peter, of course, spends time with Jesus. He's one of the apostles. Uh, he is, is someone who has, has, um, was invested in a fishing business until Jesus called him. And Peter was arrested. If you read through the book of Acts, Peter was arrested several times. One of those times, he was uh, beaten severely. And so Peter, who's writing this letter to these Christians, is one who would bear on his body the scars from the beating he received for following Jesus. Peter knows what he's calling these people to, but it's not just Peter. The second person is Silas. Some of you will recognize that name. Most of you will go, who? Silas shows up in Acts chapter 15. He's sort of this like player who was, he was an essential like part of the Jewish church or the Jerusalem church. And when in Acts 15, the apostles send this letter to the the people in Antioch, Silas goes along as a witness to say, I was there when we sent the letter. Yes, this is authentic. Silas stays in Antioch, and whenever Paul gets ready to go on his second missionary journey, Paul says we can't take Mark because Mark abandoned us the first time. So Paul takes Silas. Silas travels with Paul until they get to the city of Philippi. They get to the city of Philippi, and they're preaching the gospel. They plant this church in the city of Philippi. And then Paul gets upset. He casts a demon out of a girl. The people who were was, uh, her slave owners get upset because now they can't make money from her. And so they beat Paul and Silas ruthlessly and throw them in prison. Silas knows what it's like to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So when this letter gets written, Silas is writing from a place of, I know what I'm asking you to do. There's another named person. 
There's Mark. Mark is the third named person who appears. Now, this is the same Mark that Paul refuses to take with him when they go on the missionary journey. So Barnabas takes Mark, and they sail for Cyprus. And then Mark basically disappears. We don't really hear from Mark again till this point in this letter. There are some extra-biblical sources that say that, that claim to be Mark's perspective on what happened when they got there. And what the, the extra-biblical sources say, again, you can weigh these for what they're worth. They were written a couple hundred years later. It's hard to say whether they're authentic. But the story goes that Mark was with Barnabas in Cyprus until Barnabas was killed. Mark then went, and, and the Coptic church in Egypt claims that Mark started the church. Mark eventually arrives and connects with Peter, and he becomes Peter's traveling partner until they arrive in Rome, at which point... Mark is now in this letter. Mark is also the one who writes the gospel of Mark. And he writes it as recounting Peter's stories of Peter's time with Jesus. Mark knows the cost that he's calling these people to. But then there's one unnamed source. There's one unnamed person, this unnamed she who is in Babylon... And if you dig a little bit, what you discover is that this is actually code. It's not a person. It's a lot like Revelation. It's code. They use this word Babylon to refer to the, the, to the center of the empire, namely Rome. And she is the church. And what Peter says is the church in Rome sends you her greetings. What he's saying is these people who were persecuted at the same time you were, who have gone through the same kind of suffering you have gone through. They send you their greetings. Here's my point. Here's why I want you to see all of this. All of these people, they're not credible because they have it all together. They're not credible because they have a lot of power and a lot of status and a lot of money. They're credible because they've gone through the same kind of suffering. And when they were at their lowest, when they were beaten, when they were imprisoned for the name of Jesus, they held tight to Jesus. So when they call the church, these Christians who have been exiled, they say, suffer for the sake of the spread of the gospel. They say, because that's what we've all been doing. That's the call, friends. The same call to these exiled Christians is the same call to you and me. We can look at this book of the Bible and go, wow, that's nice. Or we can hear it in the same way that the Christians back then heard it. As a call to suffer for the sake of the gospel as a credible witness. And what Peter says, this is the true grace of God. Where do you find yourself there? Many of us signed up for this to be comfortable and easy. But the things that make us credible as witnesses in our communities is precisely when we go through the struggle and we cling tight to Jesus. When your marriage is struggling, what do you do? Just put on a happy face? Pretend like nothing's wrong? Go home, yell at each other? Do you give in to the temptation and say, I'm just going to find happiness and satisfaction elsewhere? 
Or do you open up and be honest with the people around you who will support you? Say, we're not doing well. And we need Jesus to intervene. You see, it's the struggle that makes you credible to the people around you. Because every last one of them struggles at some point. And people need to see that whenever you have nothing to lose by abandoning your faith, you still say, but this is truth. I hold on to this. Can we be those credible witnesses? Because what people want to know is when we call them to surrender their entire lives to Jesus, what they want to know is, are you doing that too? See, the world around us, the community around us is tired of hearing Christians tell them what to do without, and when they look at their lives, what they see is you don't do the things you're calling me to do. You don't pay the same kind of cost you're asking me to pay. You're asking me to live this kind of morality and you don't do it. The world around us is tired of hearing us tell them how to live without ourselves bearing those stripes. We're called to be credible witnesses. And the world around us desperately needs to see that we are the credible witnesses that they need to find this faith in Jesus credible. I believe that's who we're called to be. What do you think? It may be that that's the calling on our lives. Not it may be, it is. That we actually would be a credible witness everywhere we go. That beginning this fall and and into the winter and into the spring, we would find people crashing into life with Jesus because we were a credible witness to the hopeless. I think we can be that. I think that we have to be that. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.